turn it up. You're listening to the Marketing Millennials Podcast. I'm Emily Ferguson. And I'm Daniel Murray. Get ready, because we're taking you on a journey with today's marketing leaders and tomorrow's top stars. Let's go! No BS, just a fun, unfiltered industry conversation with the game changers behind some of the coolest companies from around the globe. The one request we tell our guests. Stories or didn't happen. A big welcome to our marketing fam. Prepare to turn them up. Hi, friends. I'm Emily Ferguson. And I'm Daniel Murray. All right. We're back with one of our long-awaited guests, you guys. Please give a warm welcome to Eddie Schlaner. Eddie, welcome. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. We're going to kind of have a little fun conversation. Not that we wouldn't expect fun, but we're going to kind of get a little bit more uh, interactive with you. So to kind of start, we obviously didn't announce like where you are or what you're doing. So can you tell uh, the marketing millennial family like a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I live in Chicago, my wife and dog. Uh, I'm a copywriter. I used to work at G2 for a couple of years, just left. Uh, recently, it was very sad, but uh, moved on to focus full time on my site. It's called Very Good Copy. Yeah. It's a blog and a newsletter. That's about it. Uh, that's a lot of it, but. <laughs> <laughs> How did you come up with the Very Good Copy? Like, where's the roots of Very Good Copy? Like, when did you decide to make this a thing? Yeah, I mean, well, Very Good Copy happened kind of organically. I was an English major. And when I graduated, I didn't really know what to do with that English major. I knew I wanted to write for a living. I didn't know what exactly I wanted to do. So I worked in sales for about a year. I was on the, I was, you know, doing inbound marketing um, or inbound sales, I should say. Then somebody, one of my friends invited me to apply at CareerBuilder, just like a job board. You know, they needed a copywriter for a new department that was starting up. So I applied there and got the job. And I think... I think they just needed a writer. I think they just needed somebody to like, you know, put words down on paper. Basically, uh, we would take, you know, ads that came in from big companies and rewrite them to be more compelling. So I didn't really know that I signed up for being a copywriter, but I, you know, kind of found out gradually as I went that like my worth was dependent on, you know, how many times I can get people to click and apply. And, you know, that is direct response copy. It's getting people to take an action. And so, yeah, basically started teaching myself direct response after that, started reading books, started listening to podcasts, going on blogs, reading them. And to kind of document everything that I was learning, I decided to put it into this blog because I figured, you know, if I could teach somebody this lesson, this tactic, this principle, what have you, in a clear and concise and entertaining way, then I probably know it well enough to use it in my own work. And so that's really how it happened. It was just, it was just me trying to teach myself copywriting, and yeah, I just was consistent with it. Just kind of stuck with it. Who are those go-to copywriters that you were studying? Well, I started. I, I was reading a lot of like HubSpot at first, and I was reading a lot of Copy Blogger. But then I was also studying like a lot of like the old school direct response masters. So John Caples and Gary Bensavenga, Gary Halbert. Uh, John Carlton. I mean, these were all, you know, really masterful copywriters who between them 
sold hundreds of millions of dollars worth of product just based on, you know, really plain, simple, ugly copy. And so it really kind of fascinated me because I was working in that realm. I was like working with job ads. I didn't have a lot of, didn't have a lot of flash to them, didn't have any art, didn't have any kind of design. So I needed to make the most out of every word, I think. And so, yeah, I was definitely studying their work and trying to figure, figure out what, what principles they were using that could be transferred over to, to what I was doing. What I find interesting is we talked about this earlier before the show is you came from a different country, your family's from a different country. You didn't learn English till you were five years old. How right. did this get become an English major? A guy who came, didn't even know English for five years. What made you get into this like English major? Oh man. I mean, yeah, I was born in Ukraine. I was born in Kiev. And then we moved when I was a year old in 1989. And then I, yeah, my parents went to work and I was basically with my grandma uh, until I was like five or six until I went to school. So, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't speaking a lot of English. So yeah, it was, it's definitely kind of a, kind of an interesting profession to find yourself in, I guess, you know, coming from those beginnings. But I think I was just, I just had a talent for it when I was in high school. I think a lot of my teachers you know, always remark that, Hey, I like your writing. I like the way that you express yourself on paper. You know, you should pursue this. You can, you should keep up with this. So I think I got a lot of encouragement early on. And I think it just like helped me double down on, you know, writing and, you know, help me like stick with it. So I think it's just like a little bit of talent, maybe like one or 2% talent on my end. I was just good at it from the start. And then I just kind of kept on training and kept on practicing. When you were younger, what spurred your creativity in writing? Was it assignments or how would you spend your free time even kind of tapping into that passion? I had a teacher who was like, hey, you know, you got to you got to write every day. And this was like I was like 16 or 17. And it was like it was like summertime. We're about to go on break. And he's like, hey, you know, you don't let up on this. Like you got to keep on writing. And I was like, well, what do I write about? And he's like, it doesn't really matter, you know. Just kind of like talk about your day, write about how you're feeling that morning journal. You know, it doesn't really matter what you do uh, or what you write about. It just matters that uh, you actually sit down and force yourself to to pen something. And so, I mean, I think a lot of a lot of it was just journaling. A lot of it was just kind of you know talking about what was going on that day or what I was uh, what I was thinking. But sometimes, you know, I'd write short stories or try to emulate something that I read somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of it is like at the beginning, you just kind of, you just kind of like copy people. You just kind of like copy, copy the things that you like. So I did my best to do that. I think. I was going to ask you when it comes to like habits, maybe that you formed in those early stages, what has carried through to kind of your adult life, even as like you've transitioned it from a passion, maybe still a passion, but more or less your career. Habits wise. Yeah. I mean, you said you used to write short stories. Do you still pen short stories? Originally, I was going to ask you, do you still like write in a journal, like actually hand write? Or are you are you comfortable in a digital format? Yeah, no. So I don't write in the journal anymore. I, I definitely okay. I, I haven't used I haven't used a pen and paper in so long. It, like hurts my hand at this point. But um, I think, yeah, as far as like habits go, definitely the discipline that I you know, I guess, I guess cultivated when I was in high school, just kind of like writing every day in the summer, you know, made its way into very good copy. 
and made its way into, you know, other jobs that I've had where, you know, I had to write consistently, write blog posts like three or four times a week, you know, just kind of like I was exercising that muscle back then. Yeah. I'm still, I'm still doing it. It's just, it's just a little bit easier now with the benefit. Flexing. Yeah. Flexing. Flexing. You're not having to, you know, do anything. I I think it's so fun. Uh, Daniel, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask because a lot of copywriting is like psychology. So how did you tap into like that side of it? I know the grades use it all the time and they use it for cues to convert people. But like, how did you learn psychology or is it through these people, the great copywriters? Well, I mean, it's a process, I think, like anything else, you know, I think I read a book a long time ago called Cash Cashvertising. It's by Drew Eric Whitman. And in the book, it's actually the the subhead is 100 Secrets of Ad Agency Psychology. And in the book, he just talks about all of these triggers that people have. You know, I think that's where I was really exposed to it at first. I was like, wow, there's, you know, there, there are things that we've evolved with as humans, as people that help us make decisions faster or kind of guide us in the right direction. And so some people call them triggers. Some people call them heuristics. Basically, there are all of these all of these little tricks that copywriters and marketers and advertisers can use to uh, tap into those uh, heuristics or tap into those those triggers that that people have. So, for example, something I use on on very good copy is called the uh, the length implies strength heuristic. It's short or it's long for leash, and uh, basically it's saying like. Hey, if, if you see a lot of something, if you see a lot of copy, most times people will use that as a cue that there's something to this, you know, um, they won't read all of the copy. Probably they'll just say, hey, like if somebody can write 30 pages on this one product or this one service or this feature or what have you, then there must be something to it. And it lends some credibility to the product, the service, the feature. You know, whenever I send out a newsletter, you know, there's just a CTA in there that solicits people to leave a review. So I've collected over the years, you know, hundreds of reviews. And on the website, before you even get to any of my content, you see dozens and dozens and dozens of reviews uh, so that by the time you get there, you're kind of primed by the length and prize strength heuristic to think, hey, you know, I'm looking at something that's credible here. Um, I, I'm don't imagine everybody reads, you know, 300 reviews before they start reading a, an article. But the point is, I guess that they don't have to, that the heuristic does the work for you. So did you memorize um, the life force eight that um, Drew Eric Whitman had of the, the eight desires that they, he puts out? I didn't book? memorize them, but I, <laughs> I have them right here in the book. Why? I think it's it's pretty good because I think everybody when you're starting a campaign a lot of people don't think about these eight desires before like running a campaign I think like when you're running an ad like we're biologically programmed to like respond to these eight desires that he found in his book so I think the eight desires are something that'd be cool just to like quickly just read off just because everybody should think of it before starting a campaign. Yeah, no, for sure. So his life force eight are, and that's exactly what he says. He says, human beings are biologically programmed with the following eight desires, survival, uh, enjoyment of uh, food and beverages, 
freedom from pain, fear, and danger, uh, sexual companionship, comfortable living conditions, to be superior, winning, so that's like keeping up the Joneses, care and protection of loved ones, and social approval. And so to your point, Dan, I mean, if you, you know, start with the end in mind and you have, you have a product and let's say that it can help you attain social approval, if you start with the campaign with the end in mind and, and work backwards, it becomes easier to kind of craft a story or craft a narrative that uh, leads the, the audience to that end point where they're like, okay, you know, this, this can benefit me socially or this can yeah. benefit me in some way. Because Ferg, for example, works in luxury watches, right? And everybody wants a luxury watch for social approval. Like most of the time it's for like social approval. Like I have this watch or keeping up with the Joneses. So like if you use those two like forces to show and she and she does it all the time, like a guy walking down the street with a nice watch or like this model wearing a watch, like it's you bring it back to what human or program like oh i want to be like that person or oh, i want to sh- show off to my friends that i have the newest rolex on my wrist so it's pretty interesting that's why i, I brought it up yeah definitely i think it's powerful it's something that no matter the industry it's applicable and that's always something that's helpful i want to know what's your favorite medium for copywriting for, like writing copy for i should preface this Sure. Yeah. I mean, I like writing for my newsletter and I like writing for LinkedIn. And usually if I write something on, you know, for my newsletter, I can, I can post it on LinkedIn. Why do you like LinkedIn so much? I think it's just a fun puzzle to solve for. Like, I think, I think basically whenever I write for, whenever I write an article, I'm always thinking, okay, like how can I take something that's happened in my life, you know, or something that I've come across an anecdote or story and how can I connect this to a copywriting lesson, a tactic or a principle? How do I do that in, you know, 215 words? Because that's, that's about what you get, you know, with 1300 character limits on, on LinkedIn. And so it becomes a fun puzzle to solve for. And I don't know, I, uh, I enjoy that, I guess. I enjoy, I enjoy creating that story, teaching people something and doing it all in a very efficient way. What's been one of your most successful like solves for LinkedIn lately? Well, lately, I mean, I think the last thing I posted was the headline was just copywriting quote. And then the quote itself was like, sometimes the best way to sell a horse is, you know, with a sign that says horse for sale or something. And then it was, but it's a Jay Abraham quote. And it really wasn't that long of a post, but um, it's been one of my more popular ones and probably because it's so accessible to people, you know, it's so consumable, like you don't have to actually read 225 words or 220 words, what have you. So I think just like this accessibility and just the fact that it was illuminating to people and refreshing to people that like, you know, an advertisement doesn't have to be, you know, the picture of creativity. It could just be direct. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I think I think a combination of those things probably probably made it made it more popular. All right. Um, this is actually a good segue because I wrote a post and it was based on what I've learned from your blog, very good copy in your newsletter, and it was basically steal these eight copywriting rules. And mm. I would want to go over them like one by one because I think 
every one of them are have like a deeper meaning and every one of them people should use in copy. So should we go over like them one by one or Let's uh, do it. cool. Sure. So the first, I, I remember one, you doing that too, Dan. I appreciate that, man. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So the first one is the sole purpose of the first sentence is to get someone to read the second sentence. Ooh. Yeah. Sorry. Love that. Yeah, no, it's a good one. Yeah, I, I mean, I read it for the first time in Joe Sugarman's book. It's called uh, The Adwe Copywriting Handbook. And it really just shifted my perspective, I think, in regards to my job as a copywriter. I think it really simplified things for me because copywriting is such a deep uh, discipline and it can be hard to wrap your mind around it. But I think thinking these terms, you know, like one sentence at a time, it just always kind of brought me back down to earth. It brought me back down to earth then, and, and it still does when I try to think of it that way. So it's helped me start writing. And I think writing is, you know, starting is the, is the hardest part. So in that sense, it's, it's been very valuable to me. And I think that's why I led with it. Yeah, and I think it's so powerful because, like, the first line is, like, the most important line. Like, Ogilvy says that, like, 80% of people read the headline. And if you don't get someone to read the first line, nobody's ever going to read that second line. Yes. And you, Ferg is one of the best copywriters I know. Like, she she literally writes like she talks and so personable. So, like, this is – and I, it's crazy because I, like – it's like natural to her. Like she could write something quicker. For me, it takes so long to like put something down on paper. First and foremost, that's so kind of you to say, especially in front of like literally one of the greatest. So I would speak to practice has really helped me with copywriting. And I think obviously confidence plays a lot in copywriting. Like you have to first become very comfortable with your, your voice or even the voice that you are writing to or for. So like once you can actually kind of hone that, then so much creativity or just like understanding of how to tap into that voice like opens. And I don't know, I, I want to pop back to like your, your first copywriting tip of, you know, your first line. I used to have trouble understanding how to effectively copyright for social And I mean that as an, I think I had so many ideas at once. And so I started in my copywriting process to really tap into that first line. And I would iterate probably 20 times and then start to like really scoop away the things that just weren't going to get someone to continue on. So that's kind of where I really resonate with that first tip so, so much. Once I really found that confidence in that first line and knew I wanted to write that second line, I knew someone would want to read that second line, if you know what I'm saying. It's like Ferg um, memorized the post because number six, well, we're out of order, but number six is when you're done writing, delete your first sentence. Better yet, delete your first paragraph. Yeah. So let's dive in deeper into that one. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think this has to do with, you know, the fact that editing is just really important. You know, like your first draft is always going to be wordier than it needs to be, you know, so that's just one thing. But, you know, also we tend to warm up when we write because jumping into your point just kind of, you know, seems awkward maybe or, or like even rude, you know, if you're writing an email or something. So but it's actually a, a, a service to the reader. You know, it saves her time. It saves her energy. There's actually this concept in, in storytelling called in media res. Uh, and it's Latin for uh, in the middle of things. And it basically says, like, if you start your story 
in the middle of the problem, in the middle of the action, in the middle of the drama, you'll hook your audience better. And if you hook your audience early and you keep them engaged long enough, eventually they'll become committed and they'll watch, read, what have you till the end. You know, conventional copywriting wisdom says that if somebody reads 20% of anything, you know, it could be an email or a landing page, it could be a book, they'll basically be invested in it and they'll read till the end. Yeah. I mean, if you delete your first paragraph, you know, I, I don't think you should take that too literally, but I think you should as a reminder as like, you know, you should go back and read it and really ask yourself like critically, like, is this important? And can I find a better lead? You know, how, what would you recommend to those that are editing themselves? And I asked this based on, I used to be a one person show, one woman show when it would come to honestly, our whole marketing department, like I was our copywriter, you know, I was our like content manager, all of the things. And I would say this is maybe a twofold question because when I started to tap into working with a team, I utilize my team so much. I call it second set of eyes. You can ask Daniel this question directly. He sat next to me when I, we worked together and I would always turn my screen or just ask like, please, this is what I've finalized on. Like, is this okay? just a second set of eyes to triple check that this is okay. Like I've okayed it. Someone else has okayed it. What do you read and understand from this? And really that initiated from my time at the NFL, but it is something like I can't live without. But I remember my times when I was the only person doing things and I had to be my own editor. And that was so tough. So I'm, I'm just curious maybe what your recommendations are. Yeah. I think you got to put a little bit of distance between yourself and the work, you know? Um, if you write something, I think you got to sleep on it, you know, give it 12 hours, give it 24 hours and then come back to it and you'll see the mistakes more clearly. But you also you also start to, you know, see the concepts that you're writing about more clearly as well, because thinking about our brains is, you know, we're they're always working in the background. It's actually called incubation. You know, if you if you research something for hours and hours and hours and then walk away from it just because you're you're not in front of the, the research anymore doesn't mean your brain isn't actively processing what you just took in, you know? So if you spend hours and hours and hours writing something and then you walk away from that and you go do something else that takes your mind off the work completely, you know, whether that's playing video games, going for a walk, whatever it is, you'll come back with the benefit of all of that incubation with the benefit of your brain going back and connecting things in the background, you know? Super valuable. Cool. So I'm going to hop back to number two, but I wanted to hop to number six because Ferg just like said it like. (laughs) But this is one of my favorite ones. People will jog to pleasure, but sprint from pain. Um, Sprint from pain. Yeah. So let's dive deep into that one. Yeah. Well, I think it's pretty simple. I mean, it's just part of the human condition. I think, you know, it's a, you know, and it's a, and it's a valuable fact to know as a copywriter or as a marketer in general that people are more inclined to avoid pain than they are to attain pleasure. If your angles come from a place of pain rather than pleasure, the promotion might pull better. The question then becomes like, do you want to create an advertisement or associate your brand with something that's painful or uncomfortable for people? That is a bigger question. One of my favorite sayings is sell painkillers, not vitamins, mm-hmm. because like, like pain prevention, people like 
Well, maybe I'll get a vitamin that will make me better 50 years, but I don't know. But like, I have a headache right now. I need to solve this pain. Like, yeah. let's do that. So it's kind of the pleasure part of it, but like the pain, like everybody, like that's something they want to solve right now and anything. So I love that one. It's an urgency thing, I think, Yeah, you know, if, it, if it comes down to it. Number three is if you're selling something complicated, make it simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not the clearest thing, but basically it goes back to not making people think too much or at all, you know, when, when they read your advertising. You know, for example, let's say you're selling software, you know, software is pretty complicated. Lots of impressive code goes into software, lots of features, lots of buttons. But as an advertiser, you don't need to tell me all that, right? You just need to tell me what it'll help me do in, in one line. And I think sometimes people fall into the trap of wanting to say too much in their marketing when really a you know a clear, simple, focused message uh, is all that's necessary. That's so cool because we actually had Robin Daniels on the other day and he was working on at Salesforce and he has a product, had a product that product marketing there and he was selling chatter and he, to explain it, he like just simplified it and said like, it's Facebook for the workplace. Like it's something everybody can get. Like it's a complicated, it's not that complicated as a software, but if you like dumb it down to the, the, the level of like just being understood, like everybody knew Facebook. So like you dumbed it down to a level where people can understand it. Um, which is a key, like, I try that in my copywriting all the time. I'm trying to be simple as possible. I write, like, so simple. Hear me out. I almost feel like the word simple and I guess maybe relatable isn't exactly, like, the most interchangeable, but, like, simple, relatable. Maybe if I could use two words. Like, to me, it's just something I can comprehend, but also kind of get quickly. Like, there is no pause. It's, like, continuation of understanding. Yeah. Well, I think one kind of comes before the other. Like if, if something's simple, then there's just a higher likelihood that people will understand it. And then if they understand it, you know, they can relate to it. So, and I think, I think you nail it, Dan. I, I think you nail it on, on LinkedIn is that your posts are, they're saying something true and they're saying it in an extremely accessible way where nine out of 10 people can understand it. And uh, that's what makes them really powerful, I think. Cool, I appreciate that. I want to go on to number four now because these are the some of my favorite copywriting tips I've got from you. Only sell one thing at a time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So this kind of piggybacks off the last one in that advertising, you know, in almost any form, it doesn't have a lot of time, you know, like every second, every word counts towards this kind of, finite amount of attention that the market will give it. And, you know, every person is different, obviously, but ultimately you have to look at the market as a whole and as a whole, our attention spans, you know, have always been really short and I think they're, they're only getting shorter. So, you know, when you have a limited amount of time to make a point, you have to be super selective about, you know, what that point is. And speaking of watches, there's, I I love watches. I'm, self-proclaimed professed watch guy like I, I enjoy watches and i hope we can talk after this sure <laughs> and uh but yeah there's this great citizen ad citizen watches they don't need a battery i think because they're they get charged whenever they're exposed to light and the whole ad is just a picture of a bed uh, with a lamp 
on the bedside table and under the lamp is a watch and the copy is something like powered by light, you know, never needs a battery or something like that. And that's the whole ad. And you can't even really see the watch, but the message is clean, right? And tight. And it's only telling you one thing about that product. And so I think that's what makes it a sound ad. You know, it, it doesn't try to give you all of the information. It just tries to sell you on one thing. And that's something that is often under overlooked or, or maybe misdone in, in marketing. Dan, I also think it sells the benefit, right? In that ad, right? So like the benefit is no battery. Like it's not selling like, and no battery and it's just charging by light. And that's like a pain point for light. Like my biggest pain point for my Apple watch is I, it has to be charged. Like, and it annoys the heck out of me. Like, but I love my Apple watch enough to get over that like hump, but it's still, it, it gives me worry that I have to like put it, if I don't put it in, it's going to die. So yeah. Um, yeah, no, for sure. And I think, you know, whatever the, yeah, I mean, whatever the benefit is, I think the point there is that like, you're only focusing on that one benefit at a time. You know, you're giving that, you're giving the audience, you're giving the market one thing to think about at a time. And so it makes it, you know, that much easier to, to comprehend and remember. I think that's powerful and not just digestible, but memorable. You're not giving them too much. Like you're leaving enough to kind of draw them in to get them to learn more. Yes. I feel the same about LinkedIn posts too. Like not selling one, like selling one idea at a time. Uh, I think a lot of people like put too much like on two, like three different ideas in a post and it gets all confusing. Like I think like, simplifying into just one idea that you want to talk about if it's about copywriting talk about copywriting if it's even like a micro thing about copywriting just talk about that otherwise it's just if you start talking about copywriting and then you go into product marketing and it just gets so confusing like nobody will understand the post anymore it just and i see it all the time on linkedin i'm like what are you guys talking about here there's like three ideas in this post right right Cool. So number five is specific sales better than generalities. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. I think when you speak in specifics, you know, you're, you're basically making a more concrete promise or implied promise to people. And it's more concrete because it's easier to visualize, you know, you're kind of, you're filling in the blanks for people. Also it adds credibility, you know, if, if you say we have 12,000 subscribers, people kind of think, well, is he rounding up? Is he rounding down? You know, why is it so even, you know, it can't be right on the dot. But if you say like, you know, Hey, we got 12,123 subscribers, then it's easier to kind of give that digit the benefit of the doubt. So yeah, it's really all about kind of helping people visualize what it is you're, you're talking about, but also in some circumstances it, it, it lends credibility to the claim. I love that. Yeah. Data. That yeah. data point. Be direct. If you're going to give us a data point, give us the full number. Don't give us a generalized. We donated oh, donated over 10,000 meals. No, tell me how many meals you donated. Right. Because then, yeah, each each donation, you know, you could put a face behind it. Um, exactly. So, yeah. Credibility. Um, the next one, so I skipped number six because we talked about it, but the most personal is the most creative. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a Martin Scorsese quote. And I think I first heard it when Bong Joon-ho 
set it at the Oscars uh, when he won Best Director for Parasite, which is a great mm-hmm. movie. And it's a true statement, you know, and, and it's something I've always used to start writing. You know, if I'm blocked or, or if I don't feel like I know where to begin, I'll try to connect whatever lesson I'm writing about to, you know, a personal story or an anecdote in my life, kind, kind of like we talked about. And the reason it works is because, you know, we're all the same. I think people are people. And more than likely, if I share a story about my life, you know, my feelings, you know, my successes, my failures, my reality in that moment, the reader will recognize it in themselves, you know, and then suddenly I'm not talking about myself anymore. You know, I'm talking about you and you know, that's compelling to people. I found in my current work about a 60% increase in overall engagement um, on our social content that includes a human element. So whether that's a humanized element in our copy or a humanized element in our like creative imagery or asset as a whole, completely different. It's amazing. So it's like if you put a face in in the creative versus... Mm -hmm. Even just like an arm for us right now, it's completely different than just like a beautiful, like scenery or stunning sort of tablescape or anything, like doesn't matter. Like there has to be a human element in it for it to kind of really make that that differentiating push. I mean, a beautiful watch is a beautiful watch, but a person wearing a beautiful watch kind of boils it back down to that attainable kind of status setting opportunity. Right. Yeah, I can see that. The last one is um, number eight. The copyrighted doesn't necessarily create art. It solves problems. Yes. Yeah, so there's, I don't know if you guys watch Mad Men, but I'm a huge Mad Men fan. I love Mad Men. I love the show. Mm-hmm. And there's this great scene uh, when Peggy Olson, she's a copywriter, is uh, complaining that the work they just created and delivered as a team wasn't up to her artistic standards, I guess. And she's talking to Don Draper, who's the creative director. And, and he said, Peggy, you know, you're, you're not an artist. You solve problems. And he's right, right? Like copywriting, marketing, advertising, the artistry of it all, the, the creativity of it all uh, is really just a means to an end, right? It's a means to attention. It's a means to efficient storytelling. So, you know, as a marketer, as a copywriter, you should always be working backwards from your goal. Sometimes that goal doesn't require, you know, much more than a simple sentence or a simple, ugly layout, you know, and frankly, that's, that's most advertising, right? Like think infomercials, think, you know, plain text emails, think cold calling scripts. Uh, These aren't artistic things per se. You know, there, I think there's an art to them, but they don't look like the art you see like in a museum or like on an album cover or something like that's because they're putting the business problem ahead of anything else. And so I think, I think that's what it means is like, if you're a copywriter, you know, come at, come at that campaign from a problem solving standpoint, you know, how can we achieve our goal on this rather than coming at it from, um, well, how can we create the most beautiful thing to look at or the most pleasant thing to hear? That's, that usually should come second to the goal. Cool. I mean, that was the eight, but do you have an extra one you can throw in there that we can give to our our, our listeners <laughs> man you guys this is the on the spot podcast <laughs> <laughs> we love it we're just trying to be real eddie yeah, yeah i hear you you've given I mean, us some good tips well well look i i think you know there, i was reading this book not too long ago it was called daily rituals and it's about 
basically it's just a collation of like all of these iconic artists and all these famous artists that like everybody heard, everybody knows of, everybody heard of them, but it's like, it's, it was their, their morning routines or their like daily routines and how they created their work. And I read it the first time, super, super fun read, super easy read. Um, and it was just for like enjoyment. And then I read it again because I was like, man, I'm like, I bet you I can extract some sort of a theme here. Like I can extract something, you know, something of consequence here that, that I could apply to my own creative process. And I really couldn't do it. I really couldn't like find one thing that everybody had in common besides, besides just like drinking a lot probably. But like the, there really wasn't one thing that everybody did. And it was, it was kind of comforting because I was like, Hey, you know, like everybody's process is different. You know, creativity is, is one of these things that, you know, it could be, it could be cultivated in so many different ways and it could be kind of like harnessed in so many different ways that, you know, there is no one right way to do it. And so I think that that's very comforting for me and it might be comforting for anybody listening that's kind of afraid to be creative in public or afraid to make something in public or afraid to get started because they think that, you know, they're doing it wrong. You're not doing it wrong. Probably um, you're doing it your way. And, and eventually your way is going gonna, is gonna to be, is going to become second nature to you and it'll work. I love that. Yeah. And I want to put you on the spot even more than our favorite se- um, session of rapid fire questions. Um, yeah. That's what we do here in the marketing millennials. We put people on the spot. All right. <laughs> You're showing up. You're showing up. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it. No, this is a really fun section where literally we just get to kind of ask you some like relatable questions that obviously make you human. So my favorite one to kick it off with is what was your first job ever, ever? Like making money or not, it doesn't really matter. I was a caddy. Really? Yes. This is the best job ever. Yeah. That's fun. Not in the winters. Not in, the, not in the winters, but from April till October, probably <laughs> September. I was I was out there and I loved it. I loved every second of it. I wasn't like a huge talker. Like there were some caddies that just big into talking to their guys. And, you know, I, I, I didn't talk that much, but I loved being out there. And I loved being like surrounded by, you know, these people that, I mean, they were having their own conversations, but they were also like laying stuff on me. Like I was just. I was just there to carry their bag, but they used me as a sounding board for ideas. They used me as a sounding board for, um, you know, issues that they were going through in their life. And, and it was an interesting place to, it was an interesting place to work for sure. So I love that. Yeah. I'm going to go with, since it's about copywriting, what's your favorite copywriting book? My favorite copywriting book is the Adweek Copywriting Handbook by Joe Sugarman. I, there's a lot of books that have helped me over the years, but I think that that one it was the first one that I read and, you know, it was the first one that really kind of introduced me to the discipline. So I think, I think I just uh, favor it because it kind of broke me in. It's also a really, really good book and I recommend it to anybody. That's awesome. What's your favorite way to stay creative? Uh, probably taking a lot of, have a lot of experiences, you know, probably like watch a lot of movies, watch a lot of shows, meet a lot of people. Um, I never pass up like the opportunity to have a conversation with an Uber driver. You know, I never pass up the opportunity to like do something, do something new. And really it's because creativity is a, is kind of a, kind of a bad word. I think in, in, in my, in my opinion, just from everything I learned about it, it's, it's not a bad word, but it's not the right word I think to use for what we do. 
Gene Schwartz said that a better word for creativity is connectivity because, you know, what you're doing when you're being creative is you're taking two things that normally don't go together and you're putting them together in a flush way. You know, that's the fun part is like, hey, how can we, you know, what's two things that we can find to put together? And then the work is actually making it flush. So the more experiences you have, the more the more shows you watch, the more people you talk to, the more you have in the bank to kind of pull from when it comes to creating a campaign or, or creating an article or doing your work. That's cool because yeah. my one of my my one of my good friends, Alan Gannett, he wrote the Creativity Curve, and sure. his main point is there: you have to consume to be able to connect the dots. So, yeah. like, and also like for you, would you're dug deep into copywriting books, so now you can take different ideas from copywriting books and put them together and put them as one idea. Where like even like the founder of Netflix, what he, he when he was a, a kid, he would work, he worked in a, a video store and he just consumed movies all day and he learned what were the best movies and what was the best like way to like what was the best hooks in movies and he learned like what entertainment is so like the consumption of that actually was what made him creative like it right. wasn't like this thing that sparked. I don't well, know. here's the thing, and, and here's what I'll say about that is like copywriting. It's a pretty beautiful thing because it's ever evolving and it's ever stagnant at the same time. You know, it's evolving in the sense that the mediums are constantly changing. The platforms are constantly changing. The way that people take in information and become influenced is, is always changing. But human psychology doesn't change and the human condition doesn't really change. And we're still living with the same evolutionary traits that we've had a thousand years ago or 2000 years ago. So you're still playing with the same psychological principles. You're just applying them to different uh, mediums. And so I guess my point is there isn't that much new from a copywriting standpoint. You know, these uh, 41 principles and tactics in cash advertising have been around for thousands of years and they'll be around for thousands more. And so it's really about like taking those principles, taking those tactics that already exist and finding a, a new way to express them. And I think that that's what I've tried to do with very good copy is just use my life and, and use interesting anecdotes to deliver this information in a new way. So one question I have for you is what is your favorite song and artist that gets you into the mood? It could be song or artist that gets you just in the mood. Like sure. hype? Well, I mean, yeah, like, give me like excited to write. I'm not really sure. Maybe like Travis Scott, like Goosebumps or something. Or like, I really enjoy Vampire Weekend too. Like yeah. Father of the Bride is one of my favorite albums. And maybe maybe those two, if I had to pick. Love it. Right. I love that. Um, I got to know, what app do you use the most? Uh, Google Docs. Google Docs. I, I write almost everything um, on my phone. I'll at some point write on my computer, but almost everything starts as a note on my phone. And like, sometimes I'll just be on the couch and I'll get an idea. I'll pull out my phone and I'll, I'll type it up right there. And it's super convenient because, you know, it could be in Google Docs and then I open up my laptop and it's right there as well. So probably that, probably that. That's awesome. I'm exactly the same. My notes in my phone is where I go a bunch. I was going to ask, do you delete your notes or do you keep your notes? I keep them. There's I keep two. mine. I have a ton. Yeah. There's nothing, nothing is deleted on my Google, on my Google Drive. There's like different folders. I'll like keep like a notes folder 
Yeah. Notes in there. I actually go back to a lot of my super, super old stuff. And it's so fun to see like kind of what the focus was at that point, if you will. Like there's so many commonalities and things at those times. Yes. What is your favorite brand currently? My favorite brand. What's your favorite brand? (laughs) That's a great throw it it back on me. I love it. I think my my favorite brand is either Nike or Lululemon. Yeah. So that's that's a hard question. I I don't know if I I don't know if I have like a favorite favorite brand. I do see what brands are doing to adjust to the climate, to everything that's going on. And I do have some, you know, there are there are some brands that I think are are doing it better than others and are making a concerted effort. I think that's important. I think that that's a really relevant question to ask is like, which brands are, yeah, taking, um, taking the right steps, you know, to kind of meet people where they are right now. Emily, I think you mentioned you, you worked at in the NFL or you worked for the NFL. What were you doing? I worked in their social team. I was a part of their social team. I am really good friends with basically the team that, went out and grabbed the players to get the player's voice to be able to truly be heard versus being behind kind of the shield as they called it. It was a powerful time. I mean, I was going to say, you know, I've been, you know, I'm a huge NFL fan. I I love football and I've been watching the way that the NFL has responded to this. And, you know, it's not, it's, it's not an easy, it's not an easy thing to do as, as a multi-billion dollar corporation to kind of like field this. But I have appreciated what they've done, and I have appreciated the way that they've stepped up for this. So I think, yeah, to answer your question, maybe the NFL, and for that reason. I love that. Yeah, and the last thing I want to do is for you, give you the opportunity to drop your, where people can find you. How can they subscribe to your newsletter? Yeah. How, oh, okay. Uh, well, you can just go to verygoodcopy.com. And there's no shortage of opportunities to subscribe on there. Just press the button. It's, it's really easy. Just give me your email and then you get a, a micro interview and a micro article a week from me. I'm also, uh, I think by the time this comes out, it'll probably be launched, uh, launching a, a very good copy plus, which is a Patreon community with, with premium content. And, and so folks can go there to watch video teardowns of landing pages and sales pages and, uh, sales letters and emails. Uh, folks can go there to uh, read more kind of gated micro articles and interviews. Folks can go there to get uh, courses and, and series that I put together. So the, the majority of Very Good Copy will be on Patreon now. And if you go over there, you can sign up and see how you like it. That's awesome. Congrats. Love it. I'm Thanks. excited for that. And can they connect with you on LinkedIn, Twitter? I know you're in both those. Yeah, of course. Yeah, by all means. Yeah, just my name on LinkedIn will get you to me. A very good copy on Twitter, right? Very good copy on Twitter, yeah. There we go. Perfect. Well, Eddie, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the Marketing Millennial family. Thank you, guys. This was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. 